Race to zero! Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. We are back with another episode in our Race to Zero series. Today, we are going to be delving in to the all-important, crucial issue of finance. Thanks for being here. Listeners, we have a cracking episode for you today. This is going to be a really remarkable hour in which we're going to delve into one of the most important and consequential issues on climate change, and that is finance. Now, don't panic. Data suggests that finance is an issue that many people find incredibly intimidating and that they don't understand the language. There's a whole bunch of terminology. And boring. And, and boring. boring. And so I'm not boring. rich enough, so I haven't got any money anyway. So it's like, a why are you know, saying However. <laughs> a complicated, impenetrable, boring issue. However. That, however, it could not be more important. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we're going to decide or it is going to be decided whether or not we deal with this issue in time or not. And actually, what we've got for you today is a series of amazing conversations that are straightforward, that will help you understand what's going on, and that will demonstrate how we can move through these difficult issues to actually achieve the turning points that we need. It's all very exciting. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm going to quote um, three fantastic quotations, two from people... Uh, you're, you're giving us three uh, quotations. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry, carry on. Well, they're quite short. I mean, uh, it's not like an essay <laughs> or whatever. Settle down, listeners. Uh, the first one is from the late, great Tessa Tennant, who uh, was uh, inspiration to many people. Uh, actually created the first uh, in kind of environmental investment fund in Europe in 1988. And she said that finance was like a bird's eye view over the whole economy that from finance you could see everything else which i thought was an incredibly astute perspective and then uh in 2003 um madeline albright the former u.s secretary of state was at a, a finance event, uh, event and she said our business is to help investors vote with their money and that went very deeply with me you know she's an academic and she's a politician and she was speaking with a whole bunch of investment institutions in swiss re and that's what she said and then the third quote i think i must have dreamt because i've looked it up on the internet a hundred times and i've never found it attributed to anybody it means you can claim it as a, this is a paul dickinson original money is information about the future okay Ooh. Now, despite the slightly esoteric nice. nature of those quotes, this is going to be an understandable episode, listeners, I assure you. Christiana. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like the third quote more than the other two, and I think we should ascribe it to Paul. Paul, there you go. I'll take it. If, you if a listener what? wants to tell us where out, it comes from. Yeah. You can put it out as a tweet. His third, the third tweet. tweet. There's a lot of pressure building on me from um, to do the third tweet, but I still think the first two are so perfect. Why, why, you know, why take a risk? <laughs> Well, however, it is actually a fun episode. So we promise to edutain you on climate finance. Mm -hmm. You will be both informed and entertained by uh, quite a few aspects of climate finance. And you will be brought up to date on where we are on this all-important issue. There you go. From movers and shakers from the world, big names. Is that right, Tom? There, absolutely. So in the course of the next 45 minutes or so, you're going to hear from Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. Amelie Amin, the Climate Change Director at CDC, the UK's Development Finance Institution. Tom DiNapoli, the controller of the enormous New York State Pension Fund, the fourth largest pension fund in the US. Kristalina Grigeva, the Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, and Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, the CEO and Chair of the Global Environment Facility. If you listen carefully, you may even also notice Nigel Topping dropping in, as he so regularly does on this podcast, and always a joy. This is huge. I mean, honestly, there are so many important people in this podcast, they can't all travel in the same car or something. I mean, if this podcast was hit by a meteorite or something, that would probably be the end of green finance, so I'm just saying... <laughs> And, and our guide for the next hour will be none other than Christiana herself. And we'll be back afterwards with some summary of what we thought. So here we go. Christiana, take us away. Five, four, three, two, one. 
god. My god, sorry about that. Hello, do you Mark. hear me? We do, Mark. We do. Okay. How are you? Are you still in Costa Rica? Yes, I'm planning on staying here. I will only move from my house if there's an intergalactic emergency. Otherwise, I'm not moving. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, okay. Um, I know that 2019 feels like a very long time ago now, but regular listeners of this podcast might remember our interview with Mark Carney all the way back in November of that year when he was still governor of the Bank of England. Tell me what you want to do. And uh, we, we, Last time we did this in the Bank of England. Can you imagine yeah. that? I know! Now, Mark Carney is the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance. First time we've ever had a UN Special Envoy for Climate Finance. And Mark is also advising the UK government on mobilizing finance for COP26. We asked Mark how he is going to leverage the ambitious new Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS as an acronym, to set the finance system toward accelerated climate action. For the discussion with Mark, we were delighted to be joined by our good friend, Nigel Topping, the UK's high-level climate action champion. Uh, but um, to get to the, to the, the heart of it, um, in terms of what I'm doing, just I'll, I'll say two sentences on that. The first is working with others on the plumbing of the financial system so that every financial decision takes climate change into account. And so that's information, it's tools like stress testing, and it's new markets. So those three. But what we're talking about now is having the commitments, and not just the commitments, the actions to uh, finance uh, the path to net zero and accelerate that pathway. You know, what this, it, it is an alliance of alliances. Um, and um, when uh, Nigel um, Topping and myself and others were, were thinking about the architecture for the financial system as it was evolving, as some alliances were, were setting up, and I think in many respect, we look first to the, the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance. Uh, so those yep. are the pension funds and the big life companies, yep. the people who ultimately have our money. It's all our money in the end, but they're the ones who have the longest horizon. Um, that being the first, moving into asset managers, but, but realizing, well, we don't really have an alliance of the standard of race to zero uh, for the banks or for the insurance underwriters as well. Um, so that's another alliance that's coming into being as part of GFANS. But secondly, getting these pillars in place, absolutely necessary. And again, reinforce of the standard of race to zero, uh, which is critical, the gold standard for a mm -hmm. net zero commitment. Um, it's the financial sector. So we need to have it coordinated uh, between these various types of entities. We need a table where they can coordinate and be reinforcing more than the sum of their parts. Um, and they can identify which elements of that plumbing I spoke about a moment ago is working well, what else is needed, what should be changed, and work on that in real time. Mark, and as you look across the table at public finance, um, from, from where I sit, I see private finance as being able to provide the scale and the speed um, that is necessary, assuming that public finance plays its role. And that role is, I think, uh, at least a two-part role. One is de-risking and accelerating private investment. But the other, which is going to play a huge role at COP26, is the political symbolism of public finance. And these, you know, these hundred billion that have been plaguing us for such a long time. I'd love to know, you know, if, if you're dealing there in the trillions, which we have to, because that's what we need, a trillion dollars um, a year for transformation. If you're dealing in the trillions from the private side, how do you look across the table at public finance, both in terms of delivering the political promise that is basically the tail that wags the dog, because what are we going to do? hundred billion is not going to do anything, but it is the political symbol. And also, how do you see it or what would you like to see in terms of what governments can do with public finance in order to accelerate and de-risk the private side? 
Yeah, essential question, and I love the way you frame it. First, there is a symbolism and a and a solidarity that comes with first and foremost making the hundred billion. Part of which uh, uh, related to um, uh, multilateral development aid and, and and other elements there. But first and foremost, making that, and that is a top priority of uh, this COP, as you know, and uh, needs to be met. Secondly. It is good news that the private sector is moving. Um, It makes it more anomalous, uh, more of an outlier that not all of the multilateral development banks, not all of the development finance institutions are uh, meeting their obligations under uh, the Paris Accord, under two, forgive me, it's 2.13C or 2.13C to be Paris aligned. The financial sector needs to be Paris aligned. And of course, these institutions themselves at the heart needs to be Paris aligned. Um, and we need it now. And, and in part of your preamble uh, under, uh, underscores the billions to trillions opportunity that comes with our multilateral development banks and de- development finances being Paris aligned and taking on elements of risk in investments in adaptation and mitigation in developing countries uh, that unlocks much larger components of private finance alongside the so-called the blended finance. Now, blended finance is it's sometimes talked about, it's almost like a holy grail. It's not a holy grail. We can find blended finance. We can unlock blended finance uh, in a way. And I think to the credit of the Italian presidency of the G20, and of course, Italy and the UK are working very closely together, as you know, for COP, uh, is to take this issue on um, and put it on the table and and really focus attention on how are multilateral development banks, uh, for example, using their balance sheets in a way that, uh, of course, does absorb risk. You have to absorb risk, but not risk that crowds out the private sector, but that opens up uh, the private sector. Exactly. And then, and then secondly, as, as we know, and, and this is a, a big emphasis of this COP, rightly so, is we need a, we need a balance to that, um, those flows, a balance between adaptation and, uh, uh, and uh, mitigation, and, mitigation uh, and, and resilience and really the, um, uh, the 50-50 split. And that's, look, I'll be candid. I don't think we'll get a 50-50 split uh, from the private sector flows. Uh, on their own, but we can we can get a 50-50 split if we have the public flows and the blended flows uh, aligned accordingly. We have to be very explicit and very deliberate uh, about that. And I think it is now time to really, uh, we, we have to do more than one thing at a time, of course, but uh, to spend more attention on the, on the, on the public side. Mark, Mark, you talk about um, the need to be explicit, that the, there's been some mixed reactions to the flurry of bold net zero Mm. commitments. I mean, particularly at GFANS, you know, she said 160 firms, 70 trillion. Um, can you say something about how people should navigate what is real net zero and what is greenwashing net zero? And how does GFANS yeah. make sure that it's the real deal, not greenwashing? Yeah. Well, I think the um, we're and we're trying to make this simpler. Um, and uh, for the financial sector, which is the bit I uh, and colleagues focus on, is uh, it's a real net zero commitment if it's ultimately part of rate, race to zero. So if it's part of a coalition that is part of race to zero, and, and for those who don't follow this as closely, and I can understand why some don't, um, there is a. Wait, wait, a, you mean you mean that not everybody is obsessively following the race to not zero? Not everybody knows about race to zero. It is. It, uh, I, uh, I have uh, no idea. I have. I'm, I'm having trouble just imagining that scenario. I know. I'm going to go outside and ask my gardener, for example, excuse me, are you following the race to zero discussion? By the way, everybody uh, who listens to this podcast does know what race to zero is. We have a we have me shouting race to zero with an echo and a round of applause and it comes on every episode. Okay. Wow. Right. Carry on. Sorry about that. For the purposes of that rare individual, just for the avoidance of doubt. Um, what this means, and let me use the example of what a real net zero commitment looks like. And I'll, I'll start with the, the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which was set up last week as part of the Glasgow Financial yes. Alliance. Okay, if you're a bank that are, is part of that alliance, and there's 43 banks from five continents and $28 trillion of balance sheet that is that are part of that, including some of the largest banks in the world, to their credit, founding members. Um, if you're a bank as part of that, Within, of course, you have committed to be net zero uh, on all of your financed emissions. So all the people you lend to, not just your operations, but of course, 
what's really relevant with the big footprint, the people you lend to and so their portfolio. Yeah, scope right. one, scope two, and scope three uh, emissions for that portfolio. Of course, that's net zero by 2050. Okay, fine. Um, but like countries, uh, we are all very focused on this decisive decade. So where are you going to be by 2030? And if you're in race to zero, you have to be contributing your fair share of the 50% reduction uh, that uh, we need to get, the collective we need to get by 2030. So as a bank, you're also made that commitment. On top of that, you need to have a five-year decarbonization plan um, for your assets. So that's not 2030, that's five years from now. On top of that, you need to, within 18 months, release plans, develop and release plans for your major exposures. Uh, so uh, you go across your portfolio and here's my real estate exposure. This is what's going to happen. This is my plan for decarbonization for that. Here's my exposure to um, the auto industry, for the energy industry, for the et cetera, et cetera, and all the way across. And you know, now it's all out in the open and we're going to go out to all those other institutions that are not in yet. And I'm not criticizing them for not being in. They haven't necessarily had the chance. But by the time we get to Glasgow, they will have had the chance to make a decision whether or not they're into the gold standard for net zero uh, and part of the solution or not. Just a final really important point, which um, yeah. uh, it's worth reminding everybody, which is I know dear to Paul's heart as the founder of CDP and yours with all the work you've done on the TCFD is disclosure, right? Is that everyone who's joined mm. GFANS will have to publish progress reports every year through CDP, TCFD, whatever mechanism, but they'll have to be transparent, yes. not just about their target and plans, but are they reaching their plans so that you know they'll be held accountable? Yes, and absolute absolute emissions, emissions intensities, et cetera, PCAF standards, GHG, yes, that's, that's absolutely correct, yeah. So Mark, given the rigor of the, let's call it the entrance process that you have um, just described, um, one might be surprised that you have a total or a current total of 70 trillion and, uh, and a pretty good expectation that that is going to grow from here to November. What is your interpretation of the motivation of these financial institutions? This is actually a heck of a lot of work for them. This yeah. is moving into unknown territory. Why are they doing it? Uh, I'll give you my judgment. I, I think it's a combination of things. I think first- They all want to talk to you personally. That's probably why. <laughs> Superstar back. I'm not sure. I'm not sure after the last couple of weeks, they want to talk to- Superstar Mark Carney. Again. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. That's all right. That's okay. Um, I can just, I can almost hear them switching off this podcast when they hear my voice. No, no. Not so. No, no. To their credit. I mean, I, I think we should give full credit to these institutions. Look, I think I think it's a combination of things. I, I do think it, it starts with a recognition. The, the world's changing and um, the rebalancing from shareholder to stakeholders um, is, is, is an important element. And we have seen that. Mm. Um, and, and, and it has shifted to different degrees in different societies, as you would expect. So you see at the vanguard is in many things uh, have been European, UK institutions and, and, and others coming in. So that's the first element. I think the second thing though, is that as part of this process, as part of the optimism side of your work and the, and the podcast, is there a sense of where the world is, is today and where it's headed, which is we are taking this issue seriously, finally, and that is going to change the rules of commerce. It's not going to change it because it's changing regulation. It's changing consumer behavior. It's changing the cost of being um, part of the problem uh, uh, for climate change. And it is very much, and this is where these institutions get more and more excited, and we're very happy about this, it is very much increasing the rewards to being part of the solution. Um, so lending to a company or investing in a company that is going to decarbonize or provide decarbonization solutions um, is a smart thing to do. And these institutions are increasingly realizing that. And they're also realizing that um, for their own shareholders, um, lenders, employees, communities, that it's important that they are seen. And, um, uh, and this is not window dressing. It's not you know, virtue signaling, um, that, that they are seen to be part of that, that solution and pushing it. And I think the other reason why 
we've got and some of the firms that came in is that they have capabilities um, and expertise that go beyond. They don't just write checks. They, they understand how markets can work and how the plumbing of the system should work. And they want to be at the table in a way that helps it sure. to work properly. Um, yeah, and, to design and, it, yeah. Yeah, to help design it, design it, or, you know, I think we have a decent idea of which direction it should go. But, you know, there's a lot that matter. If we go from 30,000 feet to 5,000 feet, there's a lot of important detail in the 5,000 to landing the plane, mm. in my metaphor. Um, and having these institutions um, involved is critical. And I'll, I'll say one other thing, which is, it sounds like a nuance, but it's really important. Um and I mean this in the best possible way, you know, big institutions have large sustainability or ESG departments or um, stakeholder departments have said various ways, various capable people. The discussions were all with the CEOs, the CEOs, the CEO, this is a business line. This is a strategic issue. And, and, and so they're bringing the whole of their institutions to, to, to address this issue. I've, and, and, Look, we need the money. This is about getting money to people who are going to help solve the problems. But we need that expertise quite candidly. And that's, I think, one of the, it's the intangible element of last week's announcement that uh, is, is almost as important, if not, and maybe in the fullness of time, we'll, it'll, it'll mean that the money is put, put to work in a way that's uh, as effective as possible. Interesting. Yeah, so CDC is the UK's Development Finance Institute. We're actually the oldest finance institute, DFI, actually, in the world. That is the voice of Amali Amin, Director of Climate Change at CDC, the UK government's Development Finance Institute, not the US Center for Disease Control, despite the same acronym. Most industrialized governments have loan institutions that bilaterally support projects in developing countries, as well as public finance flows that go through multilateral development banks. Those financing channels provide vital resources for countries to pursue the national sustainable development goals that are ultimately in the interest of global stability. We have seen through the COVID crisis how when one country struggles, we are all impacted. We've also seen how important it is to interlink development and climate goals. We were first established in 1947. Um, we, we basically do private investments. Uh, we're an impact investor and we only invest in Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So really the poorest and, you know, from a climate perspective, the most vulnerable countries in the world. And uh, as I say, we just do private investments, which um, can be quite challenging because there aren't necessarily a lot of uh, strong climate projects in those countries. So the climate team was created uh well, almost uh, two years ago now, to establish a new climate change strategy for CDC. And what we've done is really step up the agenda for CDC, uh, taking what was previously a focus on trying to integrate some renewables or energy efficiency into some of our investments, to actually taking a whole of organisation approach to, to how we address climate change. And we've set out a climate strategy that has three main building blocks, which set out our approach towards Paris alignment. The first building block is net zero and to be net zero by 2050. Uh, the second building block is how we can invest more for a just transition, recognising the, particularly in many of our markets that uh, where, where they're heavily reliant on coal at the moment, um, how we can help ensure that through our investments and through our influence as an investor, we can also help to deliver uh, those investments that deliver a social and uh, economic transition. And the third building block is how we can invest more in adaptation and resilience both to increase the resiliency of our investments, but also uh, more uh, importantly now that, uh, in terms of you know, a big challenge, I think, for, for the private sector, but for DFIs, is how we can also support businesses that are going to bring forward the adaptation and resiliency solutions that are going to be needed 
by countries over the coming decades. This is critical to make all countries and communities truly resilient. The private sector will have to throw its full weight behind climate goals. But for full private sector involvement, governments have to pull the lever to activate it. This is where institutions like the CDC come in using public funding to support developing communities and to support a drive towards a greener future of investment. Where government goes, the private sector will follow. So most countries have uh, what we refer to as a DFI, a Development Finance Institute, um, certainly in Europe. Um, we work closely with our European peers, our EDFI, European DFIs, our EDFI peers. Uh, also in the US, there is the uh, Development Finance Corporation. Uh, and in fact, uh, they have just uh, announced a new climate strategy, which uh, is very ambitious. We also work with um, the IFC, which is an international finance institution. So we also work with companies to help build their capabilities, in, particularly in climate change now, uh, in helping them manage climate risk and uh, increasingly looking at issues around Paris alignment and how they themselves can become more uh, aligned in terms of their financial flows moving forward uh, with the Paris Agreement goals. So climate change is, um, you know, we see it very much as part of our development objectives to invest to uh, ensure that those countries that we invest in can become uh, part of the uh, zero carbon economic transition that is underway globally as well as be more resilient to climate impacts. But at the same time, uh, as a financial institution that we need we need to make a return on investment. So we don't we can't provide grants. Um, we provide loans. As we invest in companies, uh, we bring uh, not just finance, but also work with those companies to ensure that they really become successful. And so, of course, when we think about the climate agenda, um, that brings both risks that we need to help our companies address and manage, uh, as well as opportunities that, again, uh, increasingly we're working to support them to better identify those opportunities and then uh, invest in those opportunities. We also do a lot of investment um, through funds as well as through financial institutions. So we can be a very strong partner to financial institutions in Africa, in Asia. Uh, again, we bring finance, but we also bring our expertise. And so in this context, you know, really helping those financial players to actually become much more uh, aware in the first instance, aware of the climate challenge, uh, aware of the risks, and then starting to integrate those into their own strategies both in terms of a risk management approach as well as uh, in, in terms of pursuing opportunities. We're an investor, right? So, so our goal is to seek out investment opportunities that will give us the return that we need uh, to secure the retirement benefits for our 1.1 million members, the New Yorkers who are public workers, who, you know, who this is what who we're investing for, for their retirement. That is Tom DiNapoli, Comptroller and Trustee of the New York State Common Retirement Fund, which holds and invests the assets of the New York State and local retirement system on behalf of more than one million state and local government employees and retirees and their beneficiaries. The Asset Owners Disclosure Project ranks the New York State Retirement Fund third in the world and first in the U.S. among public pension funds in addressing climate change-related investment risks and opportunities. To do that, they have worked to engage with the companies they invest in rather than divesting from traditional industries and polluters. So I, I would say we have a, a, a um, an inclination to, to invest, right? Not 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 to divest. And because we're, we're big, right? We're the third largest public pension plan in the country, about two hundred fifty billion uh, in assets. 
you know, we have to be, in effect, a universal uh, investor. And much of our public equity investments, which are the biggest part of our portfolio, are invested through index funds, passive investment, uh, efficient, uh, uh, lower cost, uh, easy way to deploy large chunks of capital. So all of that, you know, given how mostly indexes are set up, if you start uh, undoing the index by by taking certain companies out, you, you pervert the value of the index. So all of that makes it hard for us to look at you know, these issues from the perspective of divestment. Then you add on to it the the other perspective that we've had for a long time, which is that, you know, because we are a pension fund, perpetual investment horizon, not only are we universal, but we're forever, you know, we want to be in it for the long term with the companies we invest in. So getting them to be better corporate citizens, to change their, you know, their policies on climate, on other issues as well, makes them attractive for us, uh, you know, uh, as a sustainable investment. And because we're in it for the long haul, we have the patience to try to press them to change their 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 corporate policies and practices. So the engagement role is one that we're comfortable with. We do that on, uh, on many, many issues. All of that being said, because of the urgency on uh, the risk of climate change, not only to the planet, but to to the risk to our portfolio, right, and to our investments, and certainly being inspired by the work that that you and Tom and others did to get the Paris Agreement, and I, and I was privileged to be there at the time to see it all in action, you know, we have evolved to the point where we say now there may in fact be some cases where engagement may not work, either because we've tried it and it doesn't work or because the business model for the company we're invested in simply will not transition to what they have to do to be part of the the, the emerging uh, low-carbon economy. So we don't just look and say, all right, you're a fossil fuel company today, therefore we're going to pull out. We ask the question, are you, are you comporting your business plan, your business practices, your future outlook to the emerging low-carbon economy? Are you going to be part of the change that we need to see globally? If you are, well, then we'll stick with you and we'll work with you. If you're not, and if your business plan just doesn't comport at all with how we see the future, well, then we're going to make the decision to pull out. So it is uh, a more in-depth review before we make a decision on divestment because we really do believe that needs to be the option of last resort. And we do think you can have mm-hmm. success in pressing companies. You know, we need, we, need, we need a stable climate if there's going to be a stable global economy for us to invest in. I mean, it's, 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 it's certainly all tied together. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have we have more fully developed what we mean by fiduciary responsibility, but we have absolutely seen our work on climate to be key. We see the risk as not decades away. I mean, it's immediate. As, I mean, as you know better, you and Tom have been advocating we've got to meet that two degree or you know or better scenario sooner than later. Uh, you know, we see governments and we see corporations talking about 2050. It needs to be sooner. That's why we pegged it at the year 2040, that we want to be net zero emissions for our portfolio. Yes. Uh, it's got to be a challenge to get there. But we, we, you know, we want to set a strong goal for ourselves. Uh, and there's still time for us, I think, to achieve that because we do get criticism sometime with what we're doing. And I say, I'm a fiduciary. And what whatever decisions we're making on investing, divesting, engaging companies, advocating at a, a public policy level, certainly at the federal level, SEC level, and so on, it is tied to fiduciary responsibility. I love that. You've been a leader for such a long time on climate. You've clearly thought this stuff through over more than 10 years. And you previously had a commitment to be net zero by 2050. Now, recently in December last year, you sharpened that to 2040. And the interesting thing about when a leader goes further is clearly you've thought this through. You know what's required to decarbonize your portfolio. And you looked at your target and you said, that's not ambitious enough. Can you talk us through what, how you made that decision to sharpen it? And also what, what others can learn from that new leadership that you're now exhibiting? You know, the more we've looked at the issue, Tom, I, I, I just feel we've um, really embraced a sense of urgency, uh, you know, about this issue. And in terms of, of you know, sending a message to uh, those that may have opportunities for us to invest in in terms of climate solutions, 
I think we want to send a clear message how serious we are about that. You know, because one of the challenges is, you know, sourcing opportunities, you know, whether it's in, you know, wind or solar, renewables, um, uh, uh, green bonds. I mean, go down the list of, of, the, of the kind of investments we're looking for. Sometimes we found it hard to find them. So part of our thinking was if we make clear that we want to be a leader in this space, uh, then we'll get more folks knocking on our door uh, in terms of presenting us with opportunities. And we've seen that. You know, we've seen that and we're, and we're pleased by that. But I, I, I think, you know, to, to the point of your question, what we've also seen uh, is that we've gotten calls, you know, from, from other pension funds, uh, from other investors saying, hey, you know, how did you get to that point? And, you know, th this this has been a lot of hard work on our part and and, and, and tremendous staff resources to, to not just say, I mean, look, in some ways, right, the simple thing, some of the advocates, you know, want to say, you know, just, divest, just, just look at fossil fuels, divest oil again. That's that's going to solve this problem. Well, no, as we looked at it, that's not going to solve the problem. We have to see a holistic change um, from an investment perspective, from an economic perspective. It's not just fossil fuel companies. It's 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 you know, it's it's the agriculture sector. It's the transportation sector. It's really every business sector. And if you only focus on you know, the, the bad actors in fossil fuel and you think you're going to deal with the climate issue, you know, by by just pulling out your stocks. That's, you know, it may sound may sound easy, you know, to think that that's going to be. This. It's not, you know, so I think from our perspective, the the move to to make that commitment to, to the net zero by 2040 was really, again, part of our evolution in understanding the magnitude of the challenge. And and the value in setting an aggressive goal like that, because then then that then that presses ourselves, right? It's a challenge to ourselves. What are we doing in terms of looking at our portfolio? How are we more aggressively engaging with companies? How are we more aggressively seeking out investments uh, that comport with the, the low carbon economy that we envision for the future? So, so it's it's a marker out there that we hope others will follow. It's also an internal challenge you know, to my team to say, all right, we, we, we set that goal. Now, are we, are we taking every step to achieve that goal? I have two explanations as to why we are seeing stepped up engagement on climate and relentless pursuit of bringing more ammunition in this fight. Kristalina Georgieva, Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund today, previously CEO of the World Bank. She and I spoke on Earth Day about the future of climate finance how we have to broaden our perspective on climate change from being a problem for environmentalists to a challenge that has to be taken seriously by every institution of society. The first one is uh, uh, what COVID has uh, uh, presented to all of us to see is how interdependent we are and how dependent we are on Mother Nature. And that realization, the soberness of re-evaluating what matters in life as a result of COVID uh, has helped many who might have been less interested in the issue of climate change uh, to join uh, with you and me and, and others. And secondly, we have made tremendous progress in the uh, economic and ethical case for climate action together. There has been a long time of the ethical case standing up, but climate being seen more as an environmental issue that environmentalists need to handle. Now it is for institutions like uh, the IMF a core mainstreamed issue. Why? Because we now have all the uh, data we need about the risks and about the opportunities. And we also have what matters tremendously 
a source of optimism that action is possible. What would it take to meet the Paris Agreement you are you delivered? And what this research shows is it is doable. We need a combination of three things. One, carbon price with forward guidance. So we start low, but businesses and, and uh, consumers know the price is going to go up, um, up and up. Uh, today, the average uh, uh, carbon price per ton, as you know, is about $2. By 2030, it has to be at least $75 a ton. But we have 10 years to go in this direction. Second, a investment push towards green. Now, we need this push to get out of the pandemic, of the crisis that we are experiencing today. Why not make it green? And if we go for a green investment push, combined with carbon price, we can generate additional growth of 0.7% a year for the next 15 years, plus at least 12 million net jobs, new jobs. Uh, and that has to be paired with what you know very well from negotiations, making this to be a just transition. That there will be losers. There are uh, industries, communities that are impacted negatively by the transition from higher to lower carbon intensity. But if we use some of the revenues generated from carbon price to help reskill reprofile industries, bring science to help accelerate this reduction of carbon intensity, it can be done. So you have these three pillars and they can work in a way that actually makes us better off, not worse off as a result. Uh, and that fits into your stubborn optimism, into my optimism about moving forward. Recognizing though that we have to very carefully pay attention to all the three aspects of our journey. Mitigation, very important. Transition, hugely important. But also adaptation, equally important. So at the IMF, we look at our engagement with countries. If they are high emitters, we concentrate on mitigation and transition. If they are highly vulnerable, we concentrate on adaptation. And by doing so, we bring the membership together. One message I heard, and I know you have heard it in negotiations many times, is please be mindful of different conditions in different countries. It has to be fair. And to finish on fairness, we also have to deliver the 100 billion a year promised between now and 2030 to the developing world so we can all pull our forces and do what your book talks about. Based on my experience, the, the, the most rele uh, relevant element is um, you need to be able uh, to present the economic case uh, upfront. So you can begin, um, you can begin. Uh, Carlos Manuel, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Is there any way um, we could silence the, dog. the dogs? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the cat ran away, so. Okay. <laughs> so sorry to interrupt. The cat ran away, therefore the dogs are barking. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, beyond the barking of his beloved dogs, the final interview in this episode is with Carlos Manuel Rodriguez a fellow Costa Rican good friend and currently the CEO of the Global Environment Facility. Carlos has dedicated his career to creating equitable financial systems to protect and regenerate the natural environment and the communities who steward nature. From his experience in Costa Rica, he has first-hand knowledge of the lasting impact that finance can have in combating the climate crisis. Bueno, Carlos Manuel, eh, qué lindo tenerlo acá en el podcast. What a pleasure to have you on our podcast. I think just for listeners' delight or frustration, we just conduct this whole conversation in Spanish. ¿Qué te parece? 
Oh, that sounds great to me. Me suena muy bien. Sounds great to me. Well, you know, these poor podcast listeners are used to me singing the praises of Costa Rica. And now we have two Costa Ricans on the, on the, together. Oh. So that's going to be rather rather difficult for people to um, to digest. But, um, Carlos Manuel, I'm very um, interested by the fact that after you left the ministry here in Costa Rica and you went to the Jeff, the Jeff website calls you lawyer by profession, politician by choice, and conservationist at heart. What happened to surfer by passion? Why is that not there? <laughs> yes, uh, the, the surfer, let me explain you. The surfer is not a sport. It's a lifestyle. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. I began surfing in the early, in the late 70s in Costa Rica, where, um, where nature, even though um, the forest was um, destroyed uh, because of the development and rural policies, where destroyed the ocean was pristine back then. And um, I remember my, my couple of first years surfing that we were very concerned about sharks. We saw sharks everywhere. We, we used to serve in uh, coral reefs and river mouths and the bull shark and the hammer, hammerhead sharks well, was something that we were very much afraid. At the same time that I was very, very concerned that everywhere I went in Costa Rica, I saw forest fires and people destroying the forest because there were many policies for for the expansion of the agriculture frontier. I never knew that, um, you know, in the late 80s, the same thing was going to happen in the ocean. Right? All of a sudden, we, 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 we never saw more sharks. The sharks were, were fish out of the ocean. And um, it took me like um, 20 years uh, to have a, a north threat uh, in, in the water, which is a very nice story. Because I went from sharks to crocodiles. The sharks were fish out. When I grew up surfing, there were no crocodiles because they were all haunted. And then all of a sudden, like 15 years ago, we began seeing crocodiles everywhere. And that is because of the good conservation policies. Having been a witness of uh, how this country managed uh, properly and inappropriately, their natural resources had a big, big impact in me. So surfing has helped me understand much better the impact of climate change because as the ocean rises, the waves change. So, you know, surfers, we feel we are a victim of climate change. That's why we need to you know, <laughs> back for the 1.5. You've now stepped into uh, to the Jeff responsibility and stepped into the um, continuous rounds of replenishment that the Jeff has had. Um, and it's our understanding that you've just finished your first meeting that prepares for the eighth replenishment round. Um, you will have to uh, bring that funding cycle to a close by July uh, of next year. Um, so just wanted to ask you, yes, you still have a year to work on this, but what, what is your feeling on uh, the countries, the government's willingness and uh, and truly expanded understanding of the importance of, uh, of replenishing the Jeff? Or where are you? Are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? Are you frustrated? Where are you on that? Well, um, uh, probably you're a little bit of a stubborn optimist. I'm a rational optimist. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the science is there. Uh, the financial resources are there. And now more than ever, the political willingness and commitment is there. We need to really stop investing in those activities, economic and development activities that contribute to climate change and, and, and generate a loss of biodiversity. Let me give you the numbers uh, with respect to forest conservation. We humans invest 158 times more resources and activities that generates deforestation than what we invest in forest conservation. 80% uh, of that is related to cattle ranching and agriculture. So the first thing that we need to do at the global level that will help us in every single agenda is shifting, shifting <clears throat> this mindset and 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 this um, and being able to engage uh, policymakers in understanding that we need to defund uh, those activities that contribute to climate change and, and uh, biodiversity loss, which is more than just 
dealing with the issue of subsidies to the fossil fuel industry is way more than that. This is very well embedded into our system. In tropical forests, there's still a lot of incentives, perverse incentives that allow through land grabbing and other mechanisms to expand deforestation. So this, this should be you know, our most important approach, so dealing with development policies, dealing with the different sectors. It's not just an issue of subsidies. There are hidden subsidies. Uh, but and most importantly, dealing with the, with, the, with the banks, particularly with development banks, because as opposed to commercial banks with development banks, we've got an advantage, which is the fact that development banks has just one shareholder, which is the government. And if we, if we are enga- able to engage with the government, we can change things. The investment will be low uh, and the return will be high. Has, has that as a financial instrument been used as much as it could? Or is there still a lot of runway, a lot of headroom for payment for ecosystem services to help us with land degradation, with reforesting, with stopping deforestation? Is that something that you think is promising? And if so, in theory, where would the funding come from? We, we, we have heard the, the carbon tax many times, Luciana, but for me, that's a northern concept. There's a possibility mm-hmm. to develop what I call the tropical carbon tax, which is different to the northern concept. In the north, the tax is, you know, the aspiration is to in, increase the price Um, uh, make more efficient consumption of fuels and finance the transition. The tropical carbon tax is different. A tropical carbon tax deals with the market failure. You have a forest, you own a forest, you're a a small farmer, indigenous community, or or a large owner of forest. No, you don't receive any uh, compensation for the services you provide. So let's put a tax that goes to a forest fund that funds pays them for those services, water, biodiversity, and carbon, you will create a positive incentive to people to keep forests and we will be you know, on track for the 1.5, we'll be on track for the 30%, we'll be on track to many, many goals. We need to level the economic playing field for this instrument to be able to, to really deliver. When I'm talking about um, leveling the economic field, I'm thinking, you know, we need we need to have a good plan on how do we do the transition and shift the tax burden from taxpayers to polluters. As, as yeah. we do that, we will move the whole system into a proactive system. Today, I, I, I believe that um, it is incredibly interesting how the financial sector, the capital uh, sector, are really recognizing that they cannot continue investing in those uh, sectors that are destroying nature and contributing to climate change. Just that is fabulous. Uh, uh, Two years ago, we didn't have that mindset or the understanding. That is definitely where we should be moving toward. Question is, can we move in that direction quickly enough? Pero pero the path is clear. Um, Carlo Manuel, thank you very much for sharing all of that. Muchas gracias por todo, Cristiana. Un abrazo, estamos a las órdenes. Un abrazo. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Ciao, bye. So this year, when this crucial year in this crucial decade, and we keep saying and we keep referring to the importance of this moment, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that really, if we're going to make this turn, if we're going to deal with this issue now in a timely way, it's going to be because we get the financing right. What did you guys come away from that remarkable hour of insight and reflection from some of the world's deepest thinkers who are really grappling with this issue and trying to find a way forward for us all? Well, I'm circling back to Paul's start and his quote of our dear friend Tessa Tennant um, saying that finance is the overview of everything, with which I agree. Uh And at the same time, I've always thought that finance is actually at the basis of everything Mm. because whatever is financed gets uh, built where, you know, I'm I'm want to say wherever money goes, so go emissions or so go emission reductions. And we've been grappling with this finance issue for years and every time, and and Tom, you will remember that at every COP, right? Mm -hmm. This has always pulled the short end of the stick. 
it's always been the very, very difficult issue at every single negotiation. And perhaps, you know, a cop is not the best place to solve this, but it is a part of it because there's a part of the climate finance that is the political symbol. And those are the hundred billion, very, very small amount, sort of, you know, I've always thought of the tail that wags the dog, but the dog uh, of climate is truly the trillions that we need, $1 trillion dedicated to this per year for the next few decades. And what is delightful about this conversation that we've just had is that the trillions are now in the conversation. We used to only write about them or speak about them, but now we're beginning to see the trillions appear. And I think that is huge progress. Whether those trillions will be deployed into clean, green technologies in a space of time that actually makes a difference, i.e. over the next nine years, remains to be seen. But the good news is that is now uh, part of the, of the conversation. Now that sets up the, the, the significance of this in, uh, enormously. And, um, you know, there were a couple of comments that le- leapt out at me um, one of them was, well, a couple of them were for Thomas DiNapoli from, from the New York State Controller's Office. Uh, you know, he, that giant pension fund. I remember actually very early on in my uh, career in 2001 in climate change, I, I was sat in, in, uh, in, 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 in that office, uh, one, of, one of the staff of, 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 of that organization. And I remember I was just trying to get my head around the fact there were like 200, more than $200 billion in this, in, this, in this organization. And I was looking at the stapler on the table. And you know those kind of things where you just think you know random thoughts i was thinking that stapler is probably the last stapler to ever run out of staples in the whole world you know they're sitting on 200 billion dollars there's such a kind of enormous financial uh power represented by the office of of thomas dinapoli and 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 then the 1.1 million um of public employees uh, whose retirement savings that 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 um they're looking after so i was fascinated when he's talking about engagement with companies, you know, not just like selling them, which you could do. You could say this company's doing a bad thing. You could sell it or you could engage with the board. I think that's a fascinating area. He talked about a more developed idea of what fiduciary responsibilities would be, which I thought was really incredibly interesting. You know, the duty to invest in the best interest of the, of the, of the, of the, of the citizen. What does that really mean? And I was most excited because I'm a total academic investment geek I was most excited when he talked about um, they are a, a universal investor, that they're investing perpetually. There's no end date for the state of New York. And they're thinking about the entire economic system of the United States and to some extent the world. And they might even be prepared to intervene in those systems to protect them and to make sure that uh, climate change doesn't you know, rip the bottom out of your pension, frankly. So that was pretty exciting hearing Thomas DiNapoli talk. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what an amazing leader. And he's been at this for such a long time, just putting his neck out, making stuff happen. It it also struck me, I mean, you know, these are amazing leaders who are finding a way to find the levers that transition finance to actually make it in service of humanity's aims, right? Which is to have a livable, healthy climate where we can all thrive. And these systems that we've constructed takes a long time to transition them and make them fit for purpose for the future, right? And it's... um. It's, it's just such an interesting challenge because it takes a while to get them to a tipping point, but it just feels to me now, and Christiana, you referenced this, you know, back in Paris, this wasn't the case. We talked about theoretical trillions that would be deployed towards the solutions in the future, but it feels now like we are so close to that tipping point where there, there just will not be financing available for the past. It will only be available for the future. We will invest in the technologies. We'll deploy the solutions. The degree of support and help, that's really the moment at which the ball starts running down the other side of the hill. We really start to make progress towards the outcomes that we want. Of course, we then need to give real attention to justice and equity and all these other different issues that need to come along with transitioning the global economy. But I thought this was a hugely optimistic episode. I really felt positive about the future. Mm. Yeah, and and to add to the scale, right? Because I think uh, we're we're at the scale that we need to um, to be. But the other huge shift um, in this conversation for me is um, not just the scale or or the quantity, but the quality of the 
of this conversation because we have grown up thinking around a paradigm of money for profit, right? That's, I mean, you just put it very simply, you have the money, you invest it, and it's there for profit. And the fact that there is a nascent, not yet completely settled, but a nascent shift over to money for purpose, that paradigm shift is absolutely essential and will be so transformational in this century. And we're witnessing it right now. We are have been having these conversations, listening to these leaders, where basically they are helping to push toward money for purpose in addition to profit, not instead of, but mm. basically for both there or to be completely completely complete for um, <laughs> for profit, purpose, and planet. Uh, and that's a, that's a major shift that we're seeing there. And it's interesting there that the the purpose shift is happening at the same time that the way you generate profit is also moving to the the way you know so those yes. that that convergence yes. is what's making the difference self reinforcing self reinforcing yeah if i can quote a tiny bit uh, of a speech delivered in 1987 from uh, from Anita Roddick, the founder of the Body Shop, uh, who was very brilliant, and she said in, in actually in the in the Universal Hall in the Fintorn Foundation, she said, "I don't just want something to invest in; I want something to believe in." Mm. And I think that it's that combination, you know, yeah. that, that that this is not some kind of technocratic, you know, machines just digging stuff out of the ground and like humans aren't involved. No, no, companies are real. You know, stuff happens. You invest money in the stock market, stuff happens and that we've got a responsibility for that but that's also an opportunity the other one i just wanted to pick up on it was just brilliant to hear uh kristalina georgieva of the international monetary fund talking about she said you know today the average carbon price per ton as you know is about two dollars by 2030 it has to be at least 75 dollars a ton and i just couldn't agree with her more um you know we in some senses we need new laws and regulations to make the maths work and then All the money will flow. You know, people have often said to me before, oh, Paul, you know, do you think uh, investors care about, you know, greenhouse gas emissions? And I say, they'll care exactly as much as the money that's attached to them. So, but I think we're going to get there. But I also noticed with all these great systems and these, these giant funds and the hundreds of billions of dollars, we're just children, you know, we're just older children, really. And we've made one kind of system for ourselves and we've got to change it really quickly yeah. um, and, and recognize that, you know, then, you know, these, these banks or something, maybe 300 years old or something. But, but you know, we were born recently and we've got a problem. And uh, Houston, you know, uh, we're going to change direction. To quote the uh, famous uh, phrase from the space program, which many people will be too young to pick up on. So... I think this has been great. And so I would like to say thank you to all our listeners for coming with us on this journey. Uh, These Race to Zero episodes have been so amazingly fun to put together. I would like to say a big thanks to our team at Global Optimism. Mm. These episodes take a lot of work and people have been working really hard on pulling these together. So thank you everyone for putting this work together. Hope you have enjoyed it. This has been a special Race to Zero episode on finance. Next week we'll be back as usual. Um, So we look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. My name is Clay. I'm the producer of this podcast. If this is the first time that you're listening, thank you so much for joining us. This is our 100th episode and actually our second anniversary of being a podcast or birthday or, you know, whatever people are saying. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is welcome to the party. So this was the third episode in our Race to Zero series. You can find all the other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And as of this exact moment while I'm recording this, we have 99 other episodes for you to enjoy. That's a lot of episodes. Trust me, I edited all of them. So dig in to our podcast feed and enjoy. This podcast is a Global Optimism production, but who's Global Optimism? It's Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Marina Mancilla-Germán, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, and John Ward. 
And our hosts are Cristiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson, and this episode was produced by Clay Carnell and your new best friend, Daniel Curtis. If you're loving this series and our podcast, it means the world if you could leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to find us on social media at Global Optimism. The links to all of our social media are in the show notes. Thank you to our guests this week, Amali Amin, Thomas DiNapoli, Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, Mark Carney, Cristalina Georgieva, and of course, Nigel Topping. Okay, that's the credits for this week. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, we have a bonus episode coming your way. We're going to reflect on the last year, celebrate our 100th episode and second anniversary birthday thing. We'd love for you to join us. So hit subscribe and we'll see you then. 